I'm Mark Lynch, and this is the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, season finale. In this episode, we continue hearing speakers from the 12th annual POMEPS conference, which was held June 9th and 10th virtually over Zoom. As part of that uh, virtual experience, we were able to record this fabulous group of scholars, and uh, you're going to be hearing today the fourth panel, the concluding panel of that conference. The panel was entitled Undisciplining the Discipline, Approaches to Studying the City. We brought together a really diverse group of scholars approaching the study of urban politics from a variety of perspectives, methodologically, empirically, conceptually, and in different disciplinary approaches. The collective scholars had a real dialogue about how to think about a city, how to think about urban politics, and how to think about uh, the concepts of space, of time, and the linkages um, across both uh, both from the international to the local to what happens at the micro level within urban life. We had six speakers on the panel. You'll hear from all of them. The first was Omar Dawashi of Rutgers University. Second was Mona Harb of the American University of Beirut. Then we hear from Sarah Alcazaz of SOAS University of London. Then Pascal Menoret of Brandeis University. Then we hear from Farah Al-Nakib, California Polytechnic State University. And finally, Lana Salman of the Harvard Kennedy School's Middle East Initiative. Uh, thanks for listening to our program. Our first speaker is Omar Dawashi. So I'm an anthropologist. I'm also a physician by training. Uh, I've uh, worked on the history and politics of uh, healthcare in Iraq, uh, mainly, and uh, over the the past uh, decade, uh, since actually since the beginning of the Arab uprising, I've been uh, I was based in Beirut for uh, for almost seven years, and I conducted I was I was partly doing research on war injury and the travel of patients from across uh, the region, from Syria, Iraq, uh, uh, across these kind of different therapeutic hubs, and I'll. I'll speak a little bit about this. And so, so what I want to do today is make two, uh, two points that are very interrelated. So one is that the city, uh, the way I kind of look at uh, the, uh, the, uh, my work on health is looking at the city as a milieu for everyday experiences of war, injury, and care. And the city is not merely just a space for where economic and social uh, political drama uh, unfold, but also what, what we call in medical anthropology, a local biology, where histories of infrastructure making and unmaking and environmental entanglements and toxicity shape forms of dwelling, survival, and different kind of care projects. Um, so I'll, come, I'll speak a little bit more uh, in general about uh, this work. Uh, the, some of this work uh, comes uh, as part of the, uh, my involvement at the American University of Beirut for, for, uh, for almost a decade with my colleague, Rassan Abusitta, uh, in establishing the conflict medicine program. And uh, actually recently we just uh, uh, did a special issue uh, with Merit uh, that I, uh, I was the guest editor for. And we tried to look at this idea of health being ungoverned, this kind of unraveling of healthcare, of biopolitics across the region in, 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 in very different forms through the experiences of health. 
And my work in general has uh, the the kind of the current book manuscript that I'm working on is is trying to look at what I'm calling an ecologies of wounds and wounding, uh, mainly documenting the therapeutic travel of war injury uh, the war, uh, war injuries um, and the healthcare responses across this kind of geography that I'm calling the east of the Mediterranean. I borrow this term from an old an older uh, novel of uh, Abdurrahman Munif. Um, so I'm interested in this idea of the wound in terms of its traveling, capturing forms of displacement, movements across uh, the, uh, the region, but also looking at the uh, biosocial life of the wound, exploring the entanglements of biological, environmental, and social processes uh, in, in this kind of notion of the war milieu. So, so one of the kind of more broader uh, uh, theoretical uh, thinking about this project is to think about the wound uh, as both of a method and, 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 and an analytic, both like looking at the social symbolic and the material aspects of what does it mean to speak about the wound and to experience wounding in kind of these protracted uh, conflicts. This is a, uh, a graph showing the, uh, the number of car bombs in Baghdad between 2003 to 2014. Uh, these are one of the things that kind of show how uh, uh, injury, both as a collective and individual experience, had, had kind of shaped experience of many uh, city dwellers and uh, in Baghdad, and these are just the car bombs, uh, you know, mind you, the counterinsurgency operations, the, the different kinds of violence that happens in, in that city. And it, it is usually uh, very telling to see this map, uh, to look at kind of what has been happening there over the past uh, decades. Uh, the, with, with all these kind of rise in bombs uh, and, and injuries, uh, a lot of Iraqi hospitals having that history of sanctions and uh, occupation and destruction have become overburdened by, uh, the war, uh, by these injuries and by, in general, by the increasing burden of uh, illness and disease. And, uh, and so, so uh, one of the things that patients have been uh, doing in Iraq since like the early 2000s, I would say maybe 2005, 2006, are it's kind of a beginning to travel across the region um, uh, from uh, Beirut to Bombay, uh, including Turkey, including uh, Jordan, Syria, even Syria, where patients go to seek healthcare, and actually, uh, there is a big chunk of these funding for healthcare comes from the Iraqi government, which kind of, uh, you know, admitted that it cannot deal with these uh, with these injuries and began to create a funding uh, programs for those who are injured by terrorist attacks. And I've written a lot about how how the political value of these injuries uh, differ from one place to the other, and 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 we've uh, published. Um, uh, on the this kind of what are we calling the changing therapeutic geographies of uh, the the of, of war, mainly trying to complicate the the how uh, health is looked at through uh, kind of state borders, looking at kind of health system versus a refugee kind of camp, and this has kind of been the main approach in the in 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 a lot of the uh, literature on health. Um, but when you look at the movement of patients, be, be if they were refugees or not, you see a much more complex image of, 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 of interconnections between cities in terms of healthcare mobility and uh, patients traveling to seek healthcare. And this is not necessarily just those who are 
well off, but actually those people have been selling property, borrowing money to see to kind of uh, uh, seek healthcare somewhere else. There's also another kind of dimension of this, and in, in this 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 was an image of the American University of Beirut uh, Medical Center. Uh, uh, here is a, a kind of an MSF hospital that was own that was a kind of a unique first. Uh, uh, time uh, building a hospital that deals with uh, reconstructive surgery, mainly, first of all, in the beginning, it was mainly a response to the high number of injuries in Iraq. But then with the uh, outbreak of the war in Syria and Yemen, this hospital became kind of a, a place where patients come into it from Yemen, from Syria, and MSF has kind of been dealing with with this project now for a year, uh, for years, uh, and it's very interesting to 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 think about how um, uh, these centers and hubs become uh, a site where patients are kind of moving. Of course, I don't need to remind you. Many of you uh, obviously work on uh, displacement and refugees. There's been kind of a major movement of patients uh, of of, uh, of refugees across the region and, and and to Europe. And these are some of the kind of to just to kind of put these two crises next to each other: the Iraqi one, the displacement crisis, and this and the Syria one. And to, and to kind of think about this as a kind of a part of that East Mediterranean um, uh, kind of ecology. Uh, so one of the things that that emerged from this work is 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 a is this rise actually be, the U.S. military after the occupation began reporting on this uh, uh, superbug uh, called Acinetobacter bumaniae, which was infecting uh, American soldiers who are injured in Iraq, and and that bacteria acquired the 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 kind of the infamous moniker Iraqi bacter because of its link to to the uh, the, the the settings of war. And the main problem was that these soldiers, because of this improvement of uh, uh, sh uh, shields and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, body armor, they were injured at a bigger, much larger levels than before. And with that comes in mainly infections uh, of the superbug bacteria. And the American military was not necessarily ready for this. Uh, what was happening is that evacuated soldiers are going into the US and they're infecting uh, uh, civilians who have never seen a battlefield. And of course, it got a lot of attention because of its in, uh, relationship with the military. However, there was a, an, a, a kind of a, a, another story going on that was not necessarily covered by, uh, by a lot of these uh, kind of uh, military medicine stories, uh, is that there was a kind of a, uh, the, the, a lot of these uh, antimicrobial resistant superbugs were exploding in different conflict areas across the region. So from Gaza to Mosul, to, uh, to, uh, to, to Halab, to Libya, to Yemen, there was all these reports from different organizations about this kind of uh, uh, superbug on the march uh, across, across the region. And, and uh, this is one of the things that actually myself and, and Ghassan Abu Sitta managed to kind of bring into the attention of the media, uh, exploring the linkages between war and, uh, and the rise of this uh, uh, microbes, which, which, which were not only kind of emerging in conflict zones, but actually moving with the movement of a lot of the patients from Iraq to Lebanon. So a lot of uh, outbreaks in the uh, American University Hospital had to do with Iraqi patients coming into uh, the hospital for treatment. And, and of course, there were higher reports of these uh, infections in a place like Iraq 
uh, moving to Lebanon. And right now, it's uh, this, this problem of antimicrobial resistance is shaping uh, kind of how, uh, is shaping the, the, the environment of a lot of hospitals across the region. Uh, and, and specifically now with COVID, many patients who maybe who are dying in the hospital are not necessarily dying from COVID, but dying from secondary infections that they acquire in, in the hospitals because of these stubborn infections. Um, so, so one of the things that for me became uh, very interesting is, is, is this ethnographic gaze in, in thinking about these problems. So one of the things is that this, this acinetobacter, this Iraqi bacter uh, problem emerges uh, globally also as a major problem after the 2003 occupation of Iraq. Uh, this had to do a lot with the changing nature of conflicts in cities, um, a failure of urban reconstruction in, in Iraq for uh, you know, these long conflicts, there hasn't been any kind of serious reconstruction. So you, get, uh, so you have this kind of collapse of infection control in hospitals, but also in, in infrastructure. And, and this is kind of becomes uh, augmented by the movement of these wounded patients across these regional uh, therapeutic hubs. Uh, of course, the use and abuse of antibiotics uh, becomes very, uh, 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 becomes a major issue in under kind of these settings of war. Uh, there's a lot of subquality medication that goes in, uh, that goes into these areas. So, so, so this is a kind of a, uh, the, the, the other kind of thing that we began to realize is the, uh, is the, uh, the the role of heavy metal contaminations in uh, inducing a lot of this resistance that we see in uh, across these different war zones very quickly we started i mean this is kind of one of the things that i've been involved with as an anthropologist and someone who has a foot in the science fields and in the and the in the more of the social sciences is is working with different uh, uh, different scientists and different kind of historians and uh, and clinicians uh, trying to understand some of these uh, the, these relationship between war and uh, toxicities, uh, movement of patients across these different therapeutic hubs, and uh, and and one of the things that we've been trying to look at is if we can think about this bacteria as a form of a of an archive of political history and political events. Um, this is a kind of a, a big chunk of this Acinetobacter bacteria was what we found at the American University of Beirut Hospital that goes back to the 1960s. And one of the things that we've been working with is this idea of a biology of history. I can talk a little bit more about it, but 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 I have colleagues right now who are conducting these uh, these uh, uh, phylogenetic analysis of this bacteria and looking over time how that changes have happened and and, and if we can kind of correlate some of these uh, 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 these kind of microbiological events to more broader uh, political uh, uh, events. So looking at this through what what we can call this kind of kinship structure uh, of, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of this bacteria. Thanks, Omar, it's fascinating. Um, why don't we turn to uh, Mona Harp? Hi, everyone. My work speaks to political science uh, pretty much from a critical urban studies lens. So the city is very much an object of study for me. I'm um, quite interested in unpacking processes of production of space, uh, with a particular focus on the roles of actors at multiple scales, with a particular interest uh, to the meso-level of organized groups, uh, be 
be them political, religious, professional, NGOs, activists, community-based. So I'm very much driven by uh, the spatial triad of Henri Lefebvre. I find it a very productive framework of analysis and I use it, it drives many of my research projects and the questions that frame it. So for those who are not very familiar with Lefebvre's work, uh, I'm just going to spend a few minutes uh, uh, sharing with you the dialectical spatial triad that he, uh, he defines. We're talking about three intersecting dimensions of space, conceived space, practice space, and lived space. And conceived space is really the one that is produced by uh, professionals, political decision makers, uh, actually any decision makers that, that produces the built and natural environment, uh, how they imagine and draw really the space of the city, how they talk about it, how they represent it in maps and drawings and discourse and narratives and visions and in, uh, in renderings. This is really the space that forges the dominant political, economic and moral order. Practice space is the one that's generated by dwellers that use the space and navigate it variably. Uh, it, it, it relates more to how people move from home to work to leisure. It's the space of mobility of trajectories used uh, in their everyday lives and the associated perceived environment. Of course, I'm simplifying a lot and building on a lot of synthesis that was done by critical geographers here. Uh, the third dimension of space, lived space, is, uh, relates much more to people's experiences, lived experiences of space and their appropriations, how they appropriate space, make it their own, subvert the dominant conceived order I mentioned earlier. This is the space where people are able to live their desires, where they can own urban space, and more importantly, where revolutionary politics are nested. This is a, the space that hegemonic authorities and forces of capitalism want to control by all means as it threatens their domination. And uh, this is the space they will always seek to reproduce into conceived plant space. So from this baseline, the way I, uh, I look at regions, cities, and neighborhoods is through examining the roles of actors and organized groups in the reproduction of uh, space and the built and natural environment. And I do that through four sets of questions. First, I interrogate actors' discourses about, and about space and their representation of space. I also uh, scrutinize the institutional, financial, planning, and legal tools they use and mobilize in their actions and how these vary. Uh, a third question I, uh, I uh, also uh, privilege is how these actors are organized in networks and varying geographies uh, and temporalities and how uh, they exchange uh, resources and they legitimize this exchange. So I'm very interested in, in questions of political exchange and their modalities. And um, I'm interested in what this tells us about power and particularly the nature of the state, especially in situations where we have contested sovereignties and fragmented territorialities like Lebanon. Uh, the fourth question flips the lens and looks more at how dwellers contest and inhabit uh, unequal, unjust, unviable cities, how people uh, resist, uh, negotiate, oppose, how, how they organize to do that, or how do they just you know, dodge 
these environments to survive. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm asked here what, under which conditions they come together and or organize collective action against hegemonic forces and how urban space matters to these dynamics. Uh, now that Lebanon has moved into a much more protract protracted experience of violence, crisis, and disaster, I'm shifting that lens to examining more uh, modes of inhabiting what I'm calling urban fragments and the uh, shreds uh, of the city, uh, given that the space of collective action has really shrunk. So for each of these questions, I use very different tools of data collection and analysis. Mostly I'm someone who privileges, who, uh, who privileges uh, qualitative research tools, so fieldwork, interviews, participant, participant observation, a lot of archival research and research using available data as well. But I've been also in recent years collaborating more and more with colleagues who use uh, uh, quantitative uh, analysis through surveys. Uh, I find that this enriches lar largely our data set and our analysis. It helps us to enrich our kinds of evidence and triangulate them and make them more robust. Uh, I've been also working a lot since we established the, the Beirut Urban Lab at the American University of Beirut with, uh, with um, colleagues who use mapping, critical mapping and visualization tools uh, because we're, we're defining together our research agendas. So I'm going to illustrate my approach through uh, sharing with you a recent project I've been involved in, which is related to the pandemic. Uh, so the pandemic hit Lebanon in the aftermath of the October 2019 uprising. And I became very interested in how sectarian political actors have used it as an opportunity to reposition themselves and reclaim their territories. So. You see, again, my point of departure is the actors, their narratives, their power stakes, the actions they undertake, the modalities of their and tools of their action, the places, the geographies they work to, they choose to work in or avoid. So uh, I work, uh, I worked with a researcher, uh, Luna Dayek, and we started documenting the actions of political parties specifically, vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic. And we, and you know, we didn't have access to fieldwork, so we relied mainly on social media and media outlets and available data. And we started gathering the available information. Uh, we we started looking at where our actors are intervening, what type of interventions they were having, how. And we, as we were going along, we identified other actors that were responding to the, to the pandemic, foundations, NGOs of political actors, religious institutions, international organizations, international NGOs. So we started building an Excel sheet where we clarified our data categories and decided to start mapping what we call the governance of the pandemic in Lebanon. And we progressively added to the sheet, the non-sectarian actors that were also intervening on the ground and that adopted very different modalities of work, more geared towards solidarity and mutual aid. And we started imagining a map of Lebanon where we could feature all these actions and observe the territorialities of this governance, uh, I mean, this governance map. Uh, we wanted to also include neighborhoods and areas where no one was intervening, namely the refugee camps and the informal settlements, to show that territories were excluded from the governance of this pandemic. This proved to be much more complicated because it required data sets we didn't have. 
And uh, with Ahmad Garbiye, who's the lead of the critical mapping and visualization unit at, at the lab, we can see the GIS dashboard showcasing that Excel sheet on a map. So you see that uh, pie, how it's subdivided between red and blues. So the reds are the sectarian actors and the blue are the non-sectarian actors. And see how we were able to uh, illustrate the governance of the pandemic and the, the territories of what we call sectarianism and solidarity, showcasing that about two thirds of the responses we, we documented the, about 540 responses. So two thirds of them are led by non-sectarian and dominant groups, whereas a third is, is led by solidarity initiatives. And this is, a, I think, a good example that show, shows how the framework I shared with you earlier is quite potent as it helps uh, you know document actors conceptions and representation of space in that case the space of the pandemic uh, it showcases the tools used by actors to govern the space of the pandemic how these actors are organized in networks across territories uh, consolidating some ter territories and excluding others which also reveals uh, how the Lebanese state is is being aggravated as a zombie state, completely eviscerated by sectarian political groups. And it shows that how despite all these odds, these constraints, people still manage to contest these hegemonies, organize differently and create little spaces of solidarities where they come together and they transcend sectarian allegiances and uh, and try to forge uh, togetherness and uh, and shared spaces like they did during the uprising of 2019. We see actually a lot of uh, continuities with these mobilizations around the pandemic. So I'll stop with that and will be happy to answer any questions you may have. Thanks a lot. Great, Mona, so interesting. Um, why don't we just go directly to Sarah? Hi, everyone. Uh, wonderful to see you today. Um, thanks, Mark, for this invitation. I think it's wonderful that we have this kind of space within a conversation about uh, political science in the Middle East. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, just as a, a short introduction, I work on um, urban politics and uh, my first book is um, hopefully coming out very soon. Uh, on the politics of um, uh, urban transformation, political economy of urban transformation in Istanbul and Cairo. Um, and then now moving towards a project that I'll talk about a little bit at the end on um, digital infrastructures um, and their politics um, across the Middle East and Africa. So um, what I wanna talk about today actually carries very nicely from what Mona was just saying. Um, uh, Thank you for doing the whole sort of Lefebvre thing so I don't have to do it. Um, but I think I wanted to just take a step back um, and talk a little bit about how we think about the city within political science and where I think we should push the boundaries of that. Um, and that sort of, I'll talk about that and then I'll talk about uh, another topic, um, but I'll start with there. So I think one of the things that I've noticed, um, I mean, there's a very welcome kind of effervescence of work on the city um, within political science, largely not just in the Middle East, um, that I think is really fantastic. Um, and it's taking the space of the city very seriously. But I think so far has been hampered by a few things. Um, 
And, and mostly, um, and this, of course, everyone on this panel, um, their work falls, of course, outside of what I'm talking about right now, um, especially that, you know, if you notice a lot of people on this panel are coming from other disciplines. Um, and I think that tells us something because one of the th ways in which the city has been studied has been studied as a container of political dynamics. And what I want us to push for today is to think about the city as productive of political dynamics and maybe talk about not so much a method of, of looking at the city. I think that actually undermines what this is, but actually a whole kind of mode of analysis, a sensibility to the city that is quite um, still underdeveloped and hasn't really made much way within political science. I'm gonna call it today's spatial analysis. I love if you can just push back against that um, and kind of give me other ways to think about this um, conceptually. But let's call it spatial analysis for now, which I see as kind of pushing against this idea of a 2D geography of the city that um, focuses mostly on sort of the density of human-human interaction in the city, the density of infrastructure and how the special problems um, that uh, occur because say like cities are just really heavy on their infrastructures and the kind of governance issues that come up with that has been a lot of what people have looked at. Um, and I think missed some really important ways in which disciplines like critical geography, um, anthropology, history have done really phenomenal things for to think about the city very differently. And to start with, to think about space from a 3D perspective, right? As 3D topographies that have layered, layered topographies, ways in which people interact with the materiality of the city, its architecture, where is that infrastructure? How do people imagine it um, and, and kind of relate to it? Um, but also how do people sense it, smell it, hear it? kind of think about the thickness of the air around them and think about where that's coming from and its politics. Um, I think that kind of sensibility is something that we are not trained to do in political science. And there's a lot less space to do it within the frameworks of how we ask questions and how we analyze our quote unquote data. And so I wanna kind of, my, my goal today is to put this on, on the table as a kind of a, a movement towards recognizing that there is something kind of really special about how we think about space and, and use kind of uh, Mona's point about there, there you know, Lefebvrean kind of uh, views of, of space are very dominant in other places. And we have almost no space for a conversation about Lefebvre in uh, political science curricula. So that, that, should, that should jolt us to think about where are all the people who are studying cities getting trained? What are they think about uh, if Lefebvre is not part of that conversation, for example, as, as one theorist. Um, so, so I guess what I'm pushing for is a way for us to think about the space in terms of human environment interactions, right? Something like what Ahmad was just saying about the city as a local biology is completely missed when we just talk about human-human interactions um, and, and the sensoria and so on that I was talking about. So to think about space as a live interlocutor in our, for the people we are studying, I'm not even, I, I would like to push for thinking about non-human agency, but I'm not gonna go there right now. Uh, just saying that even if we are centering the human in our work, right? 
there, there's a way in which we can center ecologies as well and think about because everybody in those cities thinks about how they navigate their spaces very much in relation to how they think of its layers. What do they think of its architecture or how do they like navigate its architecture in particular ways? Um, and, and, and navigate the different scales that we, we what we call scales of, of actors, um, of, of uh, microbes, of, you know, how, how do they navigate all of that in a day-to-day -day basis? And um, this brings up some hard questions for us as a discipline. Um, one, kind of trying to really um, kind of take seriously spatial analysis in this sense means asking questions differently. Um, there's a way in which kind of a hypothesis testing world just is, I mean, happy for people to push back, but there, there needs to be more space for following phenomena, allowing them to tell us where the politics is, instead of assuming we know exactly what we're testing for. And the more kind of, you know, going into cities that are layered and, 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 and these kind of scales and looking for the politics formed through those scale and scalar interactions means leaving ourselves to kind of discover what the politics is going to be, as opposed to asking questions that always assume we know where it's going to be. Um, and that's a really hard thing to ask of, especially graduate students in political science, having gone through this process not too far back, um, you know, how we are trained to ask questions and what questions are seen as viable is really important to the kinds of things we should be asking ourselves. I know that like, um, we've had this conversation around interpretivism and, and even just ethnography as a method for a long time, but I think the city kind of centers this in ways that are new and again, kind of pushes us to think about them again. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is I... <sighs> I'm very sympathetic to say to, to kind of views that say, well, the really great thing, like just lumping all of this work as ethnographic interpretivist um, uh, work. But I do think it's important to think about spatial analysis a little bit differently than how we've been talking about interpretivism for a long time, mostly because interpretivism and political science is very discourse heavy. Um, and so much of the spatial analysis I'm talking about is about interpretation of uh, the materiality of, of how things are experienced. That is not just about discourse. And participant, I mean, ethnography shouldn't just be about discourse, but in political science, we have a very high um, tendency to kind of really privilege the discursive. Um, and so here I just want to pinpoint that when we privilege the, the discursive, as we're trying to do spatial analysis, we, do, we lose so much. And that's why I want to put this on the table as separate. Um, so I've, I've made my pitch here more to open up a conversation and hear pushback and hear why people feel like this kind of analysis kind of pushes at the boundaries of political science in ways that are, you know, what is problematic about this? Um, what, what is hard about it? What, what does it do to our discipline that's, that people are worried about? Um, but really mostly to just push for it and say, support your graduate students who are trying to do this. <laughs> um, the second topic I wanna to talk about is um, about um, kind of something that I came to slowly through my trajectory, uh, which is this method that has been developing really in really interesting ways around, um, uh, you know, geography, um, history, especially, which is this idea of following connectivity to find the political, um, and this will link up to Lana's conversation about scale quite a bit. 
Um, but I just want to say, you know, there's a lot of really interesting work. And if you're an urbanist and then eventually somehow end up working on infrastructure as I'm doing now, um, you start to see, you know, so much work is about the connections between, um, uh, you know, cities. Ahmad had been talking about these kind of connections, um, uh, the health connections between cities and so on. Um, exactly that kind of work, right, that pushes us not to be um, so locally specific, even though kind of the making of place and spaces is so local, but also to push us to, to think about connections across scales and geographies. Um, so a lot of really interesting work, especially with like following infrastructures of logistics um, uh, ports and so on. Lale Khadiri's work, Charmaine Shua's work um, has been pushing us in that direction. Um, Omar's work on healthcare, um, work on heritage, for example, uh, the heritage industry and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, um, Pascal has done quite a bit with connections as well um, for like thinking about experts across spaces. So, um, I, with time, I kind of, you know, this is a really interesting methodology, but it opens up some really big questions. And today, um, I, can I see my next project really going in that direction, which I'm trying to follow the physical digital infrastructures that are behind something like the cloud across the global south, which means I didn't start from a location, but instead started from um, these kind of the wires, the data centers, et cetera, and went to places with it. Um, and uh, my first kind of spot it took me to was South Africa um, and Bahrain. And this opened up a lot of questions for me as someone who has been pushing forever uh, within political science to kind of champion really grounded, heavily ethnographic field work that where people are well-trained in their places. Um, so how do we, one of the big conundrums for me is how do I think about these new field sites that I come to because of the act of following um, while being also cognizant of all of the things I care about in terms of embeddedness in, in localities and geographies. And maybe I just wanted to open that up. And I wanted to open it up carefully because so much work in political science about large end generalization and so on is moving in a direction of moving away from localization and that kind of embeddedness that Larissa was talking about quite a bit yesterday. Um, and so I'm very cognizant that it's very important not to move away from that, but also to leverage this really phenomenal thing about following these connections. The other thing is it opens up interesting questions about how we think about regions um, and our identity as scholars of those regions. Um, especially if we're going to start mapping out things like South-South connections and so on, which is what I'm seeing quite a bit. Oh, thanks, Mark. Sorry. Um, so yeah, I was just gonna say that like, you know, what's really exciting about this is also some, some of the things that are opening up big questions for me. And I wanted to just a shout out to um, what Mark said in his introductory remarks about opening up a, a new space like this for Africanists and really exciting that like you and Hisham ID and others are working on that because I feel like it's such an important thing to do right now to link up Middle East and Africa, especially that actors in the Middle East and Africa are very much connected and we should be following that. All right, uh, thank you all. Thank you so much. Why don't we go straight to, uh, I think you shouted out almost everybody who's yet to speak. So let's go straight to Pascal. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say anything meaningful after, uh, you know, uh, Omar, uh, Mona and Sarah. So I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try my best. 
but what, what I just heard made me um, made me confident that I'm in the right place because you know as as a as somebody who is not a political scientist and who was not trained in the U.S. Um, I was trained in continental philosophy and then you know in history and, and now I'm currently an anthropologist so I'm very undisciplined and I thought you know what am I doing here with all these people who are very disciplined but no there is there is a lot of undiscipline around me so I, I feel I feel good um, so thanks for this I'm, I'm going to talk about um, I'm, I'm going to give you three three very general ideas about what I've been doing in the past few years. Uh, this is not my current research. Uh, now I'm, I'm looking at everything but the city. <laughs> I'm looking at um, ecology and uh, the environment and racialization in, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula in general. So, and I'm looking basically at the, the hinterlands of the Arabian Peninsula. So everything but urban and suburban environments. So bear with me if you've heard what I'm, you know, I'm going to talk about. Um, uh, before, but basically, the first the first idea I wanted to put on the table is that the the main trick um, that I've been following when studying the city, and that's something that resonates a lot with what Sarah was just saying, is that it's to turn the background, what we usually see as the background of the action, into the main object of study, right? Uh, turning the background into one of the characters of the study, and you know, reading books of urban anthropology. I've, I've very often been kind of almost annoyed at the fact that, uh, you know, there is a background section in the beginning. There is one chapter telling you what you need to know about the place to understand the action that is going to take place uh, in the book. And, you know, what I want to do is the opposite, right, in my work. I want to, the, the background is the action, right? I mean, Sarah put it very, very uh, convincingly when, when uh, you said, uh, Sarah, right, it's, it's not a container, it's productive of, of political action. Um, and uh, I really like what you said about infrastructure as well, right? I mean, because what, what I do is, uh, has been to study boring things, right? Which is the definition of studying infrastructure and of the anthropology of infrastructure. We look at uh, we look at um, we look at asphalt. We look at roads. We look at um, traffic regulations. We look at zoning regulations. Um, there is nothing sexy about this uh, unless you look at it long enough for it to become really interesting and really exciting and really generative of political action and really not that background that. Uh, we should be oblivious of when we look at uh, at cities. Um, so basically, my, my, my main field is in Saudi Arabia. The main spaces, the urban and suburban spaces I've been looking at are in Saudi Arabia, in particular Riyadh. And I, I was basically trying, like roughly 10 years ago, to, I was trying to understand youth politics and youth politicization. And so I started very classically uh, Again, as an historian and as an anthropologist, so not as a political scientist, but I was I started with an electoral ethnography and looking at municipal elections and the networks that allowed for them to, to happen and how voters uh, uh, were basically making decisions. But then I thought that elections were actually too exceptional in that space, in that Saudi environment, to teach me anything about Saudi politics. And I didn't want to accept the idea that Saudi politics were restricted to the royal elites or to the, you know, the princes and their friends. So I was um, hanging out with um, recent um, rural migrants and to, to Riyadh and basically looking, tracing these connections between the city and the hinterland, between within the city, uh, the core of the city and the more peripheral spaces uh, like this, right? Or this is this this space here, which is even clearer. I mean, it's this is a suburb in construction, right? I mean, you see two 
um, asphalted ribbons uh, with uh, street lights that have been put in by the municipality or sometimes the developer. And you see um, uh, in the background, you see real estate offices that are ready to sell uh, the, the plots uh, that have been created. And this is the playground uh, to joyriding, kids stealing cars and creating these elaborate drifting uh, competitions at very high speed on the newly created urban highways, right? And so basically what I, what I did in that research is to, to take speed and the car as analytical, analytical tools to basically understand the landscape, right? How speed itself is made possible, how speed in an urban environment is engineered, what type of planning uh, goes into this. Again, I'm, I'm gonna borrow a lot of Sarah's uh, terms. What layers um, such a landscape which to the, to the untrained eye might seem uh, unlayered, right? Might seem superficial. Um, uh, what layers are present in that landscape? What dynamics of real estate investment of development uh, basically support an environment that is made of straight empty highways? And so I use joyriding as, as, as really a way to look at um, at the dynamics that are absolutely central to the Saudi state and its stability, right? And so, uh, well, the mayor of Riyadh in the, in the late 1960s, and then one of the Greek one of the Greek engineers who who designed the new Riyadh, and really I looked at joyriding as one byproduct of um, of those dynamics that are central to the Saudi state infrastructure politics, land politics, right? And so, as a way to to basically uncover all the layers in the, in the landscape. The idea is to look at uh, the built environment as an actor in its own right, right? To look at the city as a character. And that allows to, uh, you know, for diversification of our ways to understanding politics. So another example is um, of, of what I've been doing, and I've, I've been very, uh, very excited to hear Omar Dewashi talking about um, the bacteria as an archive. Uh, because there are, there are uh, so one of one of the one of the things I'm looking at is basically looking at the built environment itself as an archive of the state, which is uh, which is way more classical and not as not as exciting as looking at bacteria as an archive. So, uh, I, but I, again, I feel that I'm in the I'm in the right crowd <laughs> because we're looking at all kinds of things at the archives, the missing archive of of the state, right? And so. Uh, that research project that I conducted a few years ago with, with students um, was to uh, document and to write a guide of the uh, modern architecture of Abu Dhabi, the capital of the UAE. And basically, we, you know, working through uh, choosing uh, uh, buildings that are meaningful and uh, trying to find the, um, you know, the private archives that go with them and trying to find interlocutors, we basically realized that the landscape itself was that's missing archive, right? The, the stone mortar, uh, cement and concrete archive. And uh, that it was, uh, you know, very useful to look at it uh, at a time when the actual state archives were not that uh, accessible to us. So basically here, you know, uh, around us, we had basically a catalog of acts, right? Uh, we had the, the buildings themselves were witnesses to negotiations, to fundings, to deals, and, um, they were all around us. They just had to be picked up and to be visited and to be researched and, and documented. So instead of uh, aiming for the core of the state and basically, uh, you know, uh, finding a closed door, we could instead interview architects, planners, uh, look at their personal archives and thus 
reconstitutes Abu Dhabi's urban politics in terms of redistribution. And so this, this is a photo, for instance, of, uh, of uh, the Shabiyat, the, uh, the, the people's houses that were um, built in the 60s and 70s as a way to redistribute um, oil wealth, but also to uh, replan uh, the city of Abu Dhabi from the ground up. Abu Dhabi is one of these rare cities in the Gulf that have actually been absolutely demolished and rebuilt uh, from scratch, which is not the case of, of Riyadh, for instance. Um, and um, looking at segregation uh, also, right? So by, by looking at you know, such spaces as the um, you know, central market that was uh, built in the 60s, demolished, and then replaced by a, a high-end um, uh, you know, uh, uh, shopping mall basically designed by uh, Norman Foster. Um, so these, these are the two first ideas that I, I wanted to, to bring. I mean, turning the background into, into the main uh, character of the action, and then looking at cities as, 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 as an open air archive of the state. And then the third idea is what I call um, the view from the car, right? And, and it's, uh, so it's, it's, it's basically to, to look at everyday politics, um, the way people, engage with them and to follow these phenomenological um, conducts that basically allow, allow us to reconstitute people's experiences, people's um, phenomenological experience of the space and uh, people's experiences of what they do with the state, with the space uh, and also with the state, right? Because of course, I mean, like what's, what's basically that, that spatial turn in, in, in political science that's, uh, that we're talking about in this panel means that instead of the state, we're gonna talk about the space, right? And the space as that physical uh, manifestation of the state, right? Um, so what does it mean to study everyday politics? And uh, uh, so it, it means not only studying politics from an everyday perspective, right? I mean, what do uh, politicians do um, in, in their everyday life, but studying the everyday itself, right? Everyday practices as, as political. And so my last project was, was to follow uh, young activists in, in Riyadh and to, to look at how they organize their time, their commute, their intimacies, their intimate lives, their relationships to schools, to universities, administrations, and how you know, these everyday spaces constrain and allow for political action. So this, this anthropology of, of um, what, what activists call Islamic action, in Riyadh and in Jeddah, I work also on, on Jeddah a little bit, was basically a way to look at those spaces of sociability, at resources created by, the, by, by spaces and at vocabularies that have been created by activists to, to engage with, with ultimately uh, the political, right? And to understand, so how space uh, was generative or productive of, of political action. But basically, yeah, the, the, the view from the car and the view from the moving car is, is, really, um, is really something that, that I believe uh, changes our, our vision of politics in the city, but it, it, it also requires the type of embedded uh, fieldwork that's unfortunately from the US, I'm no longer really able to do <laughs> anymore. But yeah, thank, thanks very much. Thanks, Pascal. Um, why don't we go to Farah? Okay, well, thank you all for coming here. Thank you to Mark and to everyone um, for inviting me to speak. And also, again, I wanna echo the thanks to my panelists who have already spoken for setting things up so beautifully and sort of letting me off the hook and having to, to sort of address some of the issues. And so when I was thinking about how I wanted to address this question, what I wanted to focus on is an aspect of my work that some of you um, guys here might be familiar with in some of my more research, recent work, on the city, and I specialize on Kuwait and the Arab Gulf states, is on the politics of, of urban memory and forgetting. Um, 
So, you know, during the global protests that happened last spring and summer following the murder of George Floyd, uh, monuments commemorating the Confederacy, colonialism, and other racist histories were torn down in cities all over the world. We saw that most recently, even just um, in the last couple of weeks in Canada. And so we're reminded once again that collective memory, how a group remembers the past in ways that are meant to constitute a shared or collective identity, is an intrinsic part of political contestation and confrontation. Um, and so what I wanted to argue here today is that it, I think it's useful and in fact, in some ways imperative building off of the speakers we just heard um, for political scientists to incorporate questions of collective memory when analyzing changing dynamics of power. And I think that's not least, um, you know, when studying a region that faces as much rupture, turmoil and transformation as the Middle East. And the study of collective memory is inherently interdisciplinary, uh, in integrating as it does the social sciences, the humanities, the natural sciences, and there exists an infinite number of frames through which to examine and interpret the politics of collective memory. Um, and again, as made evidently clear by the aforementioned uh, confrontations over public monuments, the urban landscape of the city is one such frame for analyzing and interpreting uh, you know, collective memory and changing collective memory. So I recently published um, a chapter in this massive new volume, um, the Rutledge Handbook of Persian Gulf Politics, which is quite a, a really substantial, and I know several of the authors are here at this session today. Uh, but the chapter I wrote was called Modernity in the Arab Gulf States, the Politics of Heritage, Memory and Forgetting, in which I challenge the sort of tradition versus modernity or the local versus global slash Western binaries that permeate so much of the literature of the Arab Gulf. Um, and the main evidence that scholars often use to frame and support and project an image that the Gulf states have imported a global hypermodernity on the one hand, while remaining inherently traditional and conservative on the other, comes from the built environment. Um, so usually these kinds of juxtapositions that we see often, even as I'm gonna show here on book covers that we know of the Gulf always like to show these sort of juxtaposed skylines of the traditional uh, against the hypermodern, but also architecture that fuse, fuses traditional symbols with state-of-the-art technology and design principles, as well as the proliferation of pre-oil heritage projects that, um, such as you know, refurbished courtyard houses and reconstructed heritage villages. These are often seen when, when interpreting or looking at the urban landscape that as evidence that you know, there's this sort of ever-present binary or dichotomy in the Gulf as being hypermodern on the one hand, largely an imported modernity versus being you know, rooted in or anchored in this very traditional, more conservative kind of pre-oil past. But what's often missed um, in these analyses is, is the extent to which the so-called dual identity has been carefully constructed by a single state, state strategy that simultaneously presents the region's rulers, um, largely the ruling families and their family states, as guardians of traditional cultural values on the one hand and as visionary modernists and modernizers on the other. Now, in his work, uh, seminal work on Dubai that I'm sure many of you here are familiar with, the anthropologist Ahmed Khanna argues that after Dubai's unsuccessful political reformist struggles of the 1950s, part of the ruling Al Maktoum's family's attempts at state building entailed the political demobilization of the populace, 
and the eradication of non-state sanctioned popular movements. And this required what Kana calls the quote, depoliticization of contemporary Dubai time and space, end quote, whereby both the city of Dubai as a spatial landscape and its historical narrative had to be emptied of all trace of and opportunity for political uh, struggle or sociocultural diversity. And this depoliticization was achieved by the family state's control of the discourse of identity and its appropriation and veneration of potent local symbols, such as the family, the traditional village, usually anchored in sort of some the pre-oil past, the Bedouin tribe, and so on. And Kana describes these discourses as, quote, neo-orthodox, and this is a continuation of the quote, to point out that they are not traditional at all, but very contemporary responses to problems of Dubaian modernity, end quote. So in such neo-orthodox narratives, the polity is reimagined as ethnically, linguistically, and religiously pure, patriarchal, consensual, and autochthonous, quote, emerging whole cloth from a time and place in which these qualities are thought to have prevailed, end quote which is again, the pre-oil town or what Kana refers to as the imagined, he calls it the vanished village. And in this state discourse, what, which prevails across the Arab Gulf states, the preservation of cultural identity based on family and tradition has become the principal responsibility of the ruling family and the family state. Now, since the 90s, these neo-orthodox discourses lamenting the loss of this sort of vanished village have been given physical form in the urban landscape in numerous replica heritage villages like you see here or refurbished courtyard houses that now adorn most Gulf cityscapes. Now, while several scholars, including myself, have written about the, pol the political nature of state heritage practices and spaces, what I would like to emphasize here is that when it comes to the politics of collective memory, what is willfully forgotten and permanently erased from the physical landscape of the city can shed as much light on the political priorities and motivations of those in power as can you know, what is preserved or reconstructed. Um, and my work on this politics of forgetting draws on that of Paul Connerton, who asserts that, quote, much of the debate on cultural memory has been shaped by the view that remembering and commemorating is usually a virtue and that forgetting is necessarily a failing, end quote. But as he shows, forgetting is not always a sign of failure as it's most it's often and is often willful and deliberate. So Connerton identifies seven types of collective forgetting, many, if not most of which are precipitated by an active state. Uh, I'll just, those seven real quick are repressive erasure, prescriptive forgetting, forgetting that is constitutive in the formation of a new identity, structural amnesia, forgetting as annulment, forgetting as planned obsolescence, and forgetting as humiliated silence. Now, in the interest of time, I'm going to limit my discussion to one type of forgetting that I believe is most useful in analyses of the Arab Gulf states, but other states in general, and that is repressive erasure. So repressive erasure, Connerton says, can be used to bring about a historical break. It edits out, omits, and silences memories of struggle, of a past that might pose a political challenge in and to the present. So the scholar Thomas uh, Fibiger, who works on the, on the Gulf, Bahrain and Kuwait and other places, Fibiger provides an excellent example in his work of repressive erasure in the Bahraini government's um, March 2011 demolition of the Pearl Monument, where the uprisings of the previous month had occurred. And at the time, Bahrain's foreign minister said the monument was demolished to remove a, quote, bad memory, 
to allow the country to heal. Now for the protesters, this was an act of repressive erasure of their grievances, their oppression, their ongoing alienation. And as Fibiger claims, Bahrain, as elsewhere in the Gulf, has a longstanding record of forgetting the history of political struggle and political reform. Now, while the demolition of a Pearl Monument is a clear act of repressive erasure, this type of forgetting, as to quote Connaughton again, quote, need not always take malign forms. It can be encrypted covertly and without apparent violence, end quote. So other kinds of demolition, uh, you know, to go back to this, not of monuments, but of the everyday vernacular landscape of the city, the kinds of spaces where just everyday people have lived their lives um, at, at different time periods, that kind of demolition also, to me, constitutes acts of repressive erasure that appear more apolitical than the demolition of the Pearl Monument, but enact similar processes of forced forgetting. Now we can largely see this in the mass demolition of the Gulf's iconic modernist landscape that was built in the early oil decades. In Kuwait, while much of the demolition has occurred because of the poor quality and obsolescence of many early oil buildings, numerous structures such as the country's iconic modernist cinemas, the Chamber of Commerce building, the ice skating rink, the largest urban public housing complex, Asawabir, which you see on the top right, all have been eliminated in recent years, despite, um, let's see here, so please by architects, activists, and members of the general public to renovate and rehabilitate them. So there have been calls to preserve these buildings, but they've usually never succeeded, despite a lot of movements that have been trying to preserve. While there are obviously, you know, real estate imperatives and reasons why a lot of these sites get demolished. The few, in the few cases where some of these older, you know, early oil buildings have been refurbished, they've actually proven to be hugely popular, commercially speaking. So the, the, the sort of commercial or the, the sort of financial or real estate argument is never always entirely, um, um, you know, accurate because there have been examples of, of, of you know, other success stories. So in my own work, this demolition, um, in my own work on this demolition, I argue that Kuwait's modernist landscape has been in some ways deliberately removed to make way for reifications of the pre-oil past uh, on the one hand, alongside the construction of new hyper-modern architecture in order to create a visual juxtaposition and historical link between the pre-oil period and the present while eliminating the country's seminal decades in between. And so that is eliminating the decades starting with the advent of oil in 1950 and ending with the Iraqi invasion of 1990. Those are really the decades that we see being erased in various forms of collective memory, but in the purposes of our discussion here today, particularly in the urban landscape. Now, the plausible reasons behind this repressive erasure and what exactly it is about those decades that the state seeks to forget are myriad and complex, um, but I argue can be interpreted as deeply political. And yes, you know, alternative use, you know, you phrase it as, can there be alternative progressive people's heritage industries that push back against? And definitely I see that emerging. I've been looking at that too in Kuwait, these sort of counter interpretations. And they're usually, you know, they don't often are, they're not often seen as political grassroots activists or actors, right? There might be architects or other, but I do look at them through that political lens and what counter narrative or interpretation of the past they're pushing for to counter that state's version or state interpretation. So I agree, it's also important to look at, 
you know, what's happening at the level of the state, but what's also being pushed against when it comes to questions of preservation uh, and demolition that go beyond just, you know, preservation for preservation's sake, but what it's actually supposed to mean to collective memory and identity. Thank you. Great, thank you. Great. Um, why don't we go to our final speaker, Lana Salman. Thank you. Um, I'm very happy actually to be concluding the, the conference today. And thank you and, and for being with here, here with you. So I learned a great deal um, this past year about the discipline as an urbanist with a degree in city and regional planning that has spent the year with four colleagues at the Kennedy Schools in the Least Initiative, all political scientists, and three of whom do experimental and quantitative work. So the three comments I'm going to share with you today about my work are um, also reflections on the reactions I got uh, throughout this year while sharing my own work uh, with this group. And so with each of the comments, I will also bring up a methodological dimension that I hope help us, help, would help us think about this question of undisciplining the discipline. So my first point is to think about the domestic as a field of struggle and a terrain of politicization. So I started my research in Tunisia interested in understanding what decentralization reforms make visible about statecraft post-revolution. And my unit of analysis were participatory planning meetings organized in municipalities across the entire territory. And over 18 months of uh, fieldwork, I actually went to 78 of these participatory planning meetings to, to listen to how people make claims on um, the local state, what kind of claims and what are the reaction to these claims. And after a while, it became clear to me that, uh, that these claims do not arise in these meetings, despite the very strict procedures, they come from elsewhere and I needed to trace them back to the urban milieus that produced them. And this goes back to the point that many of my colleagues on the panel mentioned that the city as, as productive of a particular kind of politics. And in this case, something super simple, just claims for basic service delivery and dignified living. So usually politics is associated, um, is judged or judged rather through its association with public publicness or privacy. The public and vis being visible and therefore a side of politics while the private is not. But tracing the claims for basic service delivery and dignified living back to popular neighborhoods or Shabia in Tunisia, which are these underserviced working class, although I don't like this uh, terminology, but I'm gonna use it just for clarification, the underserviced working class neighborhoods at the peripheries of Tunisian cities that the poor build and inhabit as their own solution to a severe housing problem. So tracing the claims back to these spaces shows that the domestic is a site of politicization because through home building, women become political agents who develop adverse relationships with municipalities and organize for better socially productive services at the neighborhood level. So this shift is both a shift of the terrain of politics from this publicness to the private of the domestic and also of its agents, poor women that are usually thought of as outside what we understand as politics. So these less visible assemblages of everyday life galvanize protests which are the more visible and more studied stuff of politics. So rather than think about the publicness of politics, we can direct our attention to the repetitive attempts at redefining or policing this boundary between the public and the private that gives rise to certain forms of democratic politics. 
And my methodological point here is one familiar to ethnographers and to many of my colleagues on this panel is that the emerge the immersion in the quotidian, uh, which is the which is the basis of inductive reasoning and theory building. So not taking for granted the everydayness of these small lives allowed me to elevate the everyday and to highlight its importance um, as a site of politics, even if it's not if it was not readily visible or accessible to me at first glance, because I started again my inquiry into very public spaces and public fora. Um, and my second point. Uh, Claims making is a set of boundary crossing practices between the street as a space of contestation and the state as an institutionalized space of participation. So empirically, what does this mean? Uh, the loudest participants in the meetings I observed lived in popular neighborhoods. Whenever municipal officials and um, staff, administrative staff at these municipalities who were running these participatory planning meetings extolled their, partic their democratic participation, given preconceived ideas about these people who are quote unquote uncivilized and no know how to do politics. Again, these are stigmatized neighborhoods known for their lawlessness, for their Salafi Islam, for all these things that are not democratic and etiquette behavior of being political. Um, so whenever municipal offic officials extolled their democratic participation in these meetings, these participants defined participatory planning procedures and contested their premises. For example, they questioned the logic of setting the boundaries of their neighborhoods and how municipal officials accounted for service provision within them. What, what did they count? Uh, what connections to what networks? Um, and 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 what what uh, infrastructure functioned, what street lighting functioned, etc. And their effective dispositions at these meetings oscillated between you know cacophonous shouting of their demands and resignation to the status quo because most of them didn't really trust that municipalities could or would deliver on these promises. So this was participation as contestation, and many of these participants carried the language of street protests. At-Tahmish, marginalization, Hogra, disdain, and Zwewla, poverty, and the narratives created around them into institutionalized spaces of participation. Their claims were spatially anchored in the unjust cities they navigate daily, which is this idea of the city of, as productive of certain politics. So they performed participation, they also contested its premises, and its, they were skeptical of its outcomes. But they also did things that build democracy from the bottom, from the street level up. They diverted budgets, they elected neighborhood uh, level representatives to defend their interests, and they constantly questioned municipal authority over territory and planning logics. And my methodological point here is about uh, positionality. So most of my Tunisian colleagues, by which I mean Tunisian nationals uh, who work on similar issues disagreed with me that such boundary crossing practices are actually effective at remaking the local. Um, so our notions of the Tunisian local state and its various incarnations were different. And this is both the result of empirics, like they weren't at the 76 participatory planning meetings, 78 participatory planning meetings I was at, but also of positionality. Because in the background, you know, I am a Lebanese in the field. Uh, and in the back of my mind, 
uh, is an experientially and intellectually very different understanding of, uh, of, of the state, which is the Lebanese state. And this unarticulated comparison is what made it possible for me to read and interpret the Tunisian local state a little more generously, I would say, than my Tunisian colleagues would. And my third and last point is this question of scale that was already mentioned by my colleagues. That politics overflows from the domestic to the city to the global. And this is a multi-scalar analysis of urban politics. So in the first two points I made, I tried to make the point that the domestic is a politicized space and that building the city from its popular neighborhoods home by home over decades leads to claims for dignified living and basic service delivery at the municipal level. And so my book manuscript walks readers through these scales from the intimate to the local and finally to the global to make a point that an informal type of city making outside laws, regulations, institutions, all these things actually changes a fundamental institution of local governance, which is the municipality. And actually, this is a this is a global top down process, this change. It's actually on two, both ends from the intimate and from the global because Tunisia decentralization reforms were financed and technically engineered by the World Bank among a handful of donors and international financial institutions. But the World Bank in particular provided the National Constituent Assembly, at the, uh, which is the assembly, um, the, basically the parliament that put together the constitution, they provided them with several experts to draft Title VII of the 2014 Constitution on Local Governance. And the World Bank also financed a $300 million urban governance, um, urban development and local governance program in 2014, extending it until 2023 uh, with a, an additional $130 million financing. So rather than thinking of the World Bank as a hegemonic institution dictating policies of sovereign nations, and that's not incorrect about the bank, it is true, um, I historicize actually the predecessors of this project, this urban governance reform project, um, and including all World Bank programs um, that intervened in what they called the urban sector in Tunisia since the 1970s. And what I found is that before the World Bank turned to the local as a privileged site of intervention, um, it, it peddled, the institution peddled decades of urban upgrading programs, extending infrastructure to popular neighborhoods in Tunisia. And the authoritarian regime of Ben Ali instrumentalized these programs to extend its clientelistic networks in popular neighborhoods and to anchor the police state within, within them. So today's turn to the local and to decentralization reforms is, is thus part of a much older legacy of urban upgrading that is today decentralized. So throughout the Tunisian state, uh, the, the centralized Tunisian state used these programs to control territory and the bank, on the other hand, used the Tun Tunisia as a laboratory to test its development interventions in view of applying them as best practices elsewhere. So although not typically understood this way, the rearrangement of financial budgets, the performance criteria, the complex formats of intergovernmental fiscal transfers, all of them are part of this $430 million operation are anchored in the same life worlds of gendered city building of these women building homes over decades and expanding popular neighborhoods. So the implementation of this program over a decade, this urban governance program that's been running since 2014, that will run until 2023, is the result of claims making for dignified living and contestations of the local state. So though this program you know, is not radical at all, it's like 
at the end of the day, a World Bank program, and the bank is concerned with moving money, not really democracy or any other things they claim to be concerned with. So they, though it, might, it may not be radical or deliver on these promises, such neighborhoods and the precarious assemblages of collective lives within them are the conditions of possibility of these projects. So, and so the idea here is that policies and reforms are not disembodied things and procedure of procedures and financial flows. They happen to specific gendered bodies in specific milieus and give rise to particular kinds of lives. And my methodological point here is this, that this multi-scalar approach uh, from the intimate to the global is a move of, believe it or not, generalizability, though not in the conventional ways that, again, my colleagues at MEI would generalize from their case studies. Actually, all spatially anchored dynamics lend themselves, as Pascal's work shows, as Sire's work shows, as Omar's work shows, all spatially anchored dynamics lend themselves to this multi-scalar tracing. Um, nod here to Muna, who a decade ago was also one of my teachers and introduced me to these things. So, 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 so all, all spatially anchored dynamics lend themselves to these multi-scalar tracing and therefore to generalizability. And generalizability in this way need not uh, be done at the expense of contextual specificity. Both are possible if we are able to expand the ways in which we generalize. Thank you. And that concludes the speakers on the final panel of the POMEP's 12th annual conference held June 9th and 10th, 2021. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in the fall with a brand new season of the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. <laughs>